Romans is one of the more complex books that we have, not because any of it is particularly hard to understand, but because Paul is taking the time to write out to the Romans things that he wanted to say to them. Um, We know that Paul desperately wanted to go to Rome and to minister to these Roman Christians and to talk to them, and there certainly would have been things that he would have sat and taught with them day in and day out. We know that Paul would teach for hours. Um, But he didn't have that opportunity, not yet at this time. And so he was writing out all of these things that he wanted to say to them. And so the things that he might normally say in person, he's saying in, in, in a letter, and that's why it seems so complex. But really, it is a theological treatise, a manifesto. He's writing it to everyday Christians, uh, everyday people, both Jews and Greeks, and he wants them to understand the true nature and character, not only of God, but the nature of redemption through Christ. And that's why he goes through these great pains to explain things. Now, some of you know uh, famously that uh, uh, John Piper preached for a little over eight years in Romans. Um, You think about that, right? If some of you have children that are not yet eight years old, they would have been born and reached their eighth birthday and still in Romans. Um, I think Chris is being a little more gracious than that and not going a full eight years, maybe just like two. Um, But there's 433 verses in Romans. That's a lot. It's a long letter. It's Paul's longest letter. And there's a lot to be said. Um, Certainly, uh, you could preach uh, just about every verse. Um, And there's a lot to be said. But we're going to be looking at nine of those verses today. So if you would, turn with me to Romans chapter 5. We're going to be starting in verse 12. I'm going to read all this through, and then we're going to dive in. So Paul, speaking to the Romans, says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, and was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. And the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So much there. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to the justification in life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's disobedience the many will be made righteous. The law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Pray with me. Father, there is... There are times when, when reading your word uh, absolutely 
brings us joy, and there's other times when it brings us concern, and there's times when it causes us to stop and really contemplate who you are and how we are in relation to you. And Father, this is one of those times where we must stop and pause and consider how utterly holy you are and how utterly gracious you are and how utterly sinful we are. And there is no in-between. Father, I pray that you would fill our hearts with this good word and that our minds would be transformed. That the Holy Spirit would, would lean in close and help us to understand these words. I pray this in Christ's name, amen. So there's a lot there. And I suspect if you've heard this preached before, you might have heard it said that this is a, a hard text. If you've read a commentary, you're going to hear that this is, this is a hard piece of Scripture, um, that it's confusing, and I'm sorry for that because it's not. It really isn't. But what it is is a summary of covenant history. Paul is laying out for us something that <clears throat> a lot of Christians then would have understood and known. And there's a principle when you're reading Scripture um, that you have to apply, and it's what did the original writer intend? What did Paul intend? What did the original hearers understand? And then you also have to understand, too, this is written to us. It's Scripture. It's inspired. So what is the Holy Spirit talking to us about, right? We're not Romans. We're not living in this day and age. We don't have the same problems and, and situation in life. So what does it mean for us? And it's not that Scripture is, you know, ever-evolving, but it meant the same thing to them now or then as it does to us now, but how? Paul was a master rhetorician. He was a logician. He was very systematic in what he did. So he always took the time to build a case. And so that's why, again, remember in this place, in, 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 in Romans, he doesn't have the opportunity to talk to them. And so he's, he's writing all of this out in an expensive endeavor, by the way. You know, ink and paper were not cheap. And so he's taking this very long letter and he's, he's laying all these out systematically so that as we come to these various places in Romans, we're about a third of the way through in chapter five. As we come to these various places, he's gonna summarize and he's gonna bring us to a point and say, now that we're here, now that you understand this, now we can go on to these other things. When you look in 1 Corinthians chapter three, he's, um, he's rebuking them a little bit. He's saying, I wanted to discuss harder things with you. I wanted to discuss deeper things with you, and I can't because you're spiritual infants. I'm having to still feed you this milk, and you wonder, what was the amazing thing that he was going to tell them? Well, it's this type stuff. This is the exact type of thing that he wanted to discuss with them, but he's saying, you weren't ready yet. You weren't there yet, but for the Romans, they are, and we're going to get there as well today, too. Now, something that we also have to remember as we're going through this is Paul understands Adam and Eve to be actually scripture and representative of people in history. They were real. The events laid out in Genesis you know, 1 through 3 and even forward happened. Okay? None of this will make sense if Paul's thinking this was all an analogy, it was all just a story. Paul is saying these people existed, these events happened, what the scripture says is what it says. Okay. Now, another thing before we get going is 
the Puritans were regarded for their fidelity to Scripture. I can say the word. Um, long inside joke. Um, the word fidelity has a long history in the Saul's home in a good way. Um, <laughs> really since the start. But they were known for their fidelity to Scripture, and they would often preach simply on one word. One word in a verse. Sometimes multiple sermons on one word in a verse. And you're thinking, you're thinking, oh my gosh, like how? How in the world? And when I was a young man, I thought the same thing. I'm thinking, how, how would you know, somebody preach on a single word in Scripture? And you're thinking, well, what's the, what's the shortest verse you can think of? Jesus wept, right? Um, and there's like five sermons there. But you're thinking, how can, how can it just be done on one word? And that's because I didn't know then what they knew, which is the vast richness of Scripture. There is so much to be mined, mined like mining, from Scripture. And each successive thing that you read and as you meditate upon Scripture and as you grow as a believer, you learn more and you build. And imagine it like a toolbox. You're carrying around a toolbox, and you're, every time you, you learn new theology, you learn and you read more scripture and you meditate upon this, you're putting tools in your toolbox so that when you read something else, it makes sense. So that's why I tell you this passage here is not difficult if you have the tools in your box. All right, and we're going we're gonna to hand out tools today. Nothing to do with Father's Day. That just worked. Um, now, I do have to confess to you uh, that much of this sermon will be on a single word. Um, so if you don't think and figure out how I can do it, hold my grape juice, because we're going to do it. In verse 12, flip there with me again. Hey, just out of curiosity, pure curiosity, it's nothing to do with anything, I'm not taking notes. Who uses an uh, app, iPad, or a phone, or just kind of raise it up? Okay, thank you, just curious. Um, I realize when I say flip, you can't really flip your app. So, um, Now, right here in verse 12, we have a therefore. What's that mean? Therefore. What Paul's doing here is he's, he's transitioning. Now, in the original Greek, there were no spaces between words. There's no punctuation. So everything kind of ran together. And so you really had to pay attention to the words. And you had to pay attention to things like transitions. Transitions in Scripture are very, very important. Okay? Because it either means we are summarizing or moving on to or even circling back sometimes to a topic. And this is what's happening here. So let's look at this word, therefore. Let's look at how every piece of Scripture has meaning and intent. And let's see what Paul wants us to do. But first, when we're looking at therefore, what we have to do is understand we've already been through five and a half, or yeah, almost five and a half chapters of Scripture. So let's look at, just a real quick again, a summary of what we've looked at in Romans so far up on the screen. And by the way, I gave you blank, uh, blank pages today just for notes. You, you don't have to draw pictures or anything, um, but I just don't have fill-ins. I'm not very good at those. All right, so in Romans chapter 1, Paul points, now obviously this is very summary, okay? Uh, Paul points out that Christ is prophesied in Scripture, that the gospel of Christ is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes that the just, that is those who are declared righteous, shall live by faith. The righteous, those who give in to malice, must face the wrath of God. It's pretty heavy for an introduction. Chapter 2, those who judge others are themselves condemned. 
God will judge the moralists because of their works and that they fall short of God's perfect standards. Those who simply do quote-unquote good things um, that really just benefit them because it makes them feel good. Uh, That God is impartial, judging those who have heard the law and those who have not heard the law. Um, The the idiom phrase there is, um, you know, ignorance is no excuse. And then we cover circumcision of the heart and the spirit is more important than circumcision in the flesh. Chapter 3, man's unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God. And then we have this, um, this very interesting phrase by Paul. He asks the question, you know, does this mean that we can be sinful so that good may come? And he says, certainly not, absolutely not. He goes on to say that the Old Testament witnesses to the universal depravity and guilt of mankind, that the law cannot save us from our sin and the penalty it deserves. The death of Jesus satisfies the righteous judgment of God and that sinners are justified by faith apart from works. And you'll see in an asterisk there, we're going to come back to that uh, because, as I said, Paul builds upon himself and he's actually going to start referencing back Uh, to previous arguments in chapter 3. Let's look at chapter 4. Abraham was not justified by works, but declared righteous through faith. We're going to come back to that as well. Works involves earning merit, whereas grace is a freely received gift. Grace and the law are the principle, and faith and works are the means by which we pursue those principles for our relationship with God. You should write that one down because that's very helpful. Grace and law are the principles, and faith and works are the means by which we pursue these principles for our relationship with God. I'll remind you what uh, Scripture says later on in the New Testament in James, and that we are enabled to do good works through the Holy Spirit. And then he goes on to say, if we believe that God raised Jesus Christ from the dead, faith will be imputed to us in the same way that it was to Abraham. And then chapter 5 so far, verses 1 through 11, we've seen that we can access grace through faith, that we glory in tribulation, which is meant to inspire hope in us, and that Christ died for the ungodly, and believers are saved from the wrath of God through Christ and then reconciled back to God. So there's a lot that Paul has covered. And if you've been here through this series since we started, um, it's been heavy. There have been some certainly heavy things that we've, we've covered. But what Paul is going to do now is transition. And he's going to say, all these things I've talked about, which we just covered, all these things that we have studied and I have labored over, and you can imagine Paul sitting there trying to figure out how to write this down. How do I express and convey these deep theological truths, this, this goodness and the holiness and the righteousness of God and our decrepitness? How do I write this down? And he does it just here. So that's that. Now, I told you before that Paul assumes that the events in Genesis are, in fact, real. They are historical. So let's take a look at those, get that in our minds as we're working through, because we're going to be talking a lot about Adam here. And so I think we just need to spend just a minute or so in covering uh, perhaps what Paul was thinking about. So if you turn to Genesis uh, chapter 2, now... This is, this is the pinnacle of creation, right? We've had everything else is created, and God makes man. He makes Adam, and he makes Eve. 
He sets them in this perfect garden. Um, and he initiates a covenant with them. We're going to talk about covenants here in a minute. But he initiates a covenant. And it's, we'll talk about it. It's called the, the Adamic covenant or the covenant of works. But here's where it comes from. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. He also gives the man um, several other commands, which is to populate the earth, be fruitful and multiply, have dominion over the earth. These are all works-based actions, right? Adam has the opportunity to not sin. He has the opportunity to obey. He's created without sin. So that's, that's his covenant there, and we'll talk about that. And then we move over to Genesis 3. Genesis 3, of course, recording the fall. But this is God telling him really what some of this curse means. Now he says, By the sweat of your face you will eat bread and you will return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, meaning I made you from the dirt. Um, for you are dust, and from the dust you shall return. So the Hebrew word for Adam is adam, which means dirt, earth, uh, which is curious. We don't really get that translated in English. But until now, uh, all the way up through chapter 5, we've been talking about some things, but Paul has been slowly walking us in. So you know like when you're at Adventure Island or a, a water park and there's the wave pool, right? And you walk in. You don't dive into the wave pool because the whistle, but you walk into the wave pool. And even if the waves are going, when you're, when you're at a, a certain distance, you know, inches deep, the kids can play, you can sit, you know, there's no, there's no concern but as you wade out, you know, you got to kind of do that thing a little bit, you know, where you got to kind of go with the waves. And then as you get further out, you can't touch the bottom anymore. And so you have to, you have to kind of float and you have to tread water. You have to, you know, you have to stay above water, okay? At this point, starting in chapter 5, if you think it's been, <laughs> if you think this has been hard, at chapter 5, this is where Paul starts, we start getting into the deeper part of the water, okay? Now we're maybe on our tiptoes and we're, we're learning these deep, deep things of Scripture. Now, there's a lot of talk, if we go back, um, especially here in, in 12 through 14, there's a lot of talk of one man, one man, one man. And Paul is using, uh, he's using a, a rhetorical device here, all right? He's allowing our minds to focus on this concept of one thing. And so he's trying to be very clear here. But also, what he's focusing on a lot, and, and what we're going to focus on a lot here is sin, all right? We're going to use the word sin a lot. I'm sorry. If that bothers you, just understand we're going to ride the wheels off that word today. It's important. It's important for us to know. But what's all this talk of one man? Well, Adam was the archetype of humanity, meaning he was the first, he was the best example that there was. But there was nothing before him, and that seems kind of simple, but there was no humans before him. That's going to come into play later on in this, in this section. But all of humanity would follow in Adam's examples and his exertions, all right? Everybody would follow in his steps. The fall of Adam, therefore, had a universal effect on all of humanity, as we saw in Genesis. Every subsequent generation, he tells Eve that you will have, you know, uh, you will have suffering. You will have pain and childbearing. You will seek to have dominion over your husband. And he tells Adam that death 
will come upon you. And you're thinking, maybe, you know, when you read this, you're like, you know, maybe Satan was kind of right, like they didn't die right away. What does that mean? How does it mean that God says, if you eat of it, you will die? Well, again, a concept that we have to understand is, it's, we're not just flesh and blood and bone. We are souls, So unlike an animal who has spirit, which gives it life, when the animal dies, it's done. When we die, however, we are unnaturally, supernaturally, because of sin and death, separated from our flesh. Now, we know that we will have resurrection and new flesh, but we will still always have flesh. Even in the new creation, we will be human. It'll be new, it'll be fresh, it can do things, it's not corrupt, it's free from sin, but you will always be a soul. So kind of ponder through that and think through that. Therefore, souls do not die, but he's saying your flesh will begin to die. And indeed, Adam did live a long time. And, you know, as each successive generation, with a couple exceptions, lived shorter and shorter lifespans to where today, if you make it to, you know, 75 to 100, that's a long life lived instead of hundreds of years. So death did come upon, and it's not just death from aging. We see very quickly with Cain and Abel, right? You know, the first uh, sibling rivalry, the first sibling spat, death came upon it quick. It was able to, okay? Um, Another way to think about this is when you're thinking about the Israelites in Egypt and you're thinking of the plagues and the very last plague is death, right? Death is going to come to the firstborn and they're commanded to take blood of a lamb and paint it over the doorpost. And when death came, right, when, when the angel of the Lord came and saw the blood, it would pass over, right? You're all with me? When sin entered the world, it enabled death. So think of it really kind of like Passover, except there was no blood yet. And that's where it says death reigned. Death had the ability to do what death does, which is to kill. Sometimes through natural process, sometimes through uh, dubious means, but death is now possible. Okay, and that's what it means. Now, when we're talking about Adam's sin, when we're talking about Adam's guilt, we have to come upon two theological distinctions that, again, Paul is, is working on here. And one is called federalism, all right? So let's take a look at this real quick. So federalism is this, not like the U.S. government. Um, <laughs> some of you are like, I ain't no federalist. Um, But biblical theological federalism looks like this. Every human is descendant from Adam and Eve. We're all good there. Adam is the representative head of all humanity. We're pretty good there. When Adam sinned, he sinned as the representative, this is that federal part, of all humanity. His decision was binding upon all people of all time. This is probably where I'm starting to lose some of you because you're like, that's not fair. Yeah, that's the point. This is also why the virgin birth is so critical. Jesus became the new Adam, and it bypassed the sin, but not the curse of death, obviously. So we see 
that the curse was given to Adam and his descendants, but it comes through natural childbirth. So there's a type of, of biological element to sin that we, it, it really doesn't matter. It's sometimes fun to think about. But sin, regardless of how it happens, is passed through each successive generation of people. Okay, and it comes through childbirth. That's how we do it. So that is federalism. Now, there's also another distinction called seminalism. So let's pull that one up. Adam's sin, this is, this is the uh, kind of a competing view, I guess you would say. Seminalism says that Adam's sin corrupted the human nature that he passed on to his posterity, we're there, as the entire human race was genetically present in Adam. Well, that's technically right. I mean, everybody is descendant um, from Adam and Eve, so we can, we can go there. Adam's guilt is not passed on to his children, but his sinful tendencies are. Eh, wait a minute. His children, with their corrupted nature, readily join in Adam's rebellion at the first available opportunity and are therefore guilty of their own sin. Eh, okay? I wanted to point this out to you because if you've ever heard or you've ever talked about what we're talking about today, which is federal headship, there is this other kind of competing idea. Now, <clears throat> the truth is, the problem with seminalism, it puts us in direct contrast with Romans 3.23, okay? Which is, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All. There are times in Greek where the Greek is very, very, very clear, and all means all here. It's not a summary statement. It's not a general. It's all. All have sinned. So that's the primary problem with this. But the truth is, it's really kind of, there's, there's a little bit of both, um, that we should work on. But the idea is this. Here's where I want you to walk away with this particular idea. Adam is the head of all humanity. His actions had necessary consequences on everybody. Yes, it does seem strange that one man's actions could have consequences for you, however many thousands of years later. But yes, think of it as, you know, you as a parent make a decision for your family, and the children fall in line whether they want to or not, whether there's acquiescence or not. You know, we're going to this place for lunch. Well, I don't want to go. I didn't ask you. All right, they're going. It's that type of thing. So it comes all the way down. That's going to matter in a little while later, as Paul will get into. The next thing we have to talk about in order for us to even get past the word therefore is covenant. All right, covenant is the theme that, that runs throughout the entire tapestry of Scripture. All of Scripture points to Christ. All of Scripture is about our need for redemption, and that redemption comes through Christ. But there's a common thread, and it's covenant. Covenant is the theme of Scripture. Now, that's a word we don't hear very often. We hear it maybe at Christian weddings um, it sometimes is used uh, in a legal sense. It is a legal term. Um, but we in the modern evangelical church often do not use this word because it harkens back to um, hard things. <laughs> it sometimes reminds us of, quote, the law. And we think the law is bad, and so we behave like antinomians, ones who disregard the law, lawless ones, and we ignore covenant but we do that to our own dismay. We do it to our own uh, ill. But let's look at covenants. 
Let's walk through, because Paul's talking about all of these. He won't name them, but he'll hit on them. So let's look at the first covenant slide. Now, we talked earlier, the very first covenant, um, well, the very first covenant with people was between Adam and God, and this is also called the covenant of works, but we can also see even within the Trinity, um, they covenant with each other, which is really interesting to see. So covenant is important to God, but with, with the Adamic covenant, uh, Adam was required to obey God, this is the works, in order to secure God's blessing. And what was he required to do, or rather not to do? Don't eat from the tree. Be fruitful. Multiply. Have dominion over the earth. And in one fell swoop, he misses them all. He misses the mark on all three in one shot. Okay? Um, when Adam failed, he brought sin and the curse of death into the world, and the curse spread to all humanity because all humanity is descendant from Adam. We just saw that in our previous federalism and seminalism slides. The next covenant, now we have with Noah, called the Noahic covenant. Now, this is the framework in which creation will be preserved by common grace until the fulfillment of the promise. Common grace is something we'll talk about uh, really all throughout Romans. And this is God's staying hand on creation. Yes, things are crazy. Yes, things seem out of order. They seem chaotic. But think about what that would be if God removed his staying hand. That's common grace. And when we see, um, you know, the ark, the ark settles on the mountain and the water, you know, uh, recedes and, you know, the animals are let out and the trees are growing and they, you know, and, and God's talking and he says, no more again will I destroy the earth by water. And then we have what? The rainbow, right? As a sign of the promise, but also a remembrance of what had happened. And that particular um, thing was a sign or a seal of the covenant. So rainbows even, I mean, it's silly. Like you just, oh, a rainbow, you know, and you, you, you're amazed by it because it's, it's gorgeous. But that's the Noahic covenant. The next one is the Mosaic covenant. Now, and I hope you're in your mind, you're tracking all through Scripture here. But in the Mosaic Covenant, this provides the necessary regulations and legislation for the community that had grown from a family to a nation. So it was Abraham's family, and now they were a nation. They had come out of Egypt. They were, they were in uh, the low millions of people. God provides full revelation of the nature of the necessity of the response owed to his covenant grace. So what he's saying is, he's reminding them now of Adam. He's reminding them of their inability. He's saying, I am setting up a covenant. I am setting up a treaty with you. And I know you're not going to be able to follow it, but here's how you follow it, okay? This, we're, getting, we're getting progressive here, if you're, if you're noticing. Next, please. The Davidic covenant. So God's rule over his people is given concrete manifestation and the line through which the Messiah will come is specified. This is huge. They've been waiting all these generations to understand what will Messiah look like. Generations come and go and they forget. Others become more pious and they think and they look on. But now we know it's going to come through the line of David. This is significant. Even Jews today will talk about the line of David and how great King David was. So the Davidic covenant is another progression. 
Next, please. The new covenant. This, of course, is where Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples. The, the night he is to be arrested and they are celebrating the Passover feast and they have food and they have drink and he, he at some point uh, stands up or sits up and he shows them this, this wine is like my blood and this bread is like my body and take it. And he's, he's ex- trying to explain to them, he's giving them a visual representation of this new covenant. And this is one of the reasons why we take communion or the Lord's Supper. We're remembering. We are, uh, in a sense, toasting to the new covenant, to the new kingdom. We're acknowledging, we're proclaim- proclaiming victory in it. But Jesus sets up the new covenant. So Messiah appears and accomplishes redemption for his elect. The Father brings to fruition the type and prediction of the earlier covenants. Remember, each covenant was progressively working towards Christ and away from Adam. The Holy Spirit seals the covenant and secures it. And Christ is covenant-bound to claim his bride. That should be that should be a deep assurance for us. That God not only says, I will come back for you, but then binds himself covenantally. Jesus contractually obligates himself to come back and to claim his people. And that's huge. That should give you promise. And he says, and as proof of this, as, as earnest money, as good faith, I'm sending the Holy Spirit to seal that contract. So God is saying, I hereby promise to save you and to come and retrieve you. And I'm also sending God to make sure that you don't fall away, that that will happen. So think of it like this. If it was a business contract, um, there's usually a, a upper and a lower party in a contract, right? Somebody is agreeing to do something in order for somebody else to agree to do something. Sometimes it's a contract between equals, but usually there's an upper and a lower. And it, it would be as if the upper said, I will give you these things if you do these things. However, I know you can't do these things. So I myself am going to go out of my way and use my resources to ensure that you can fulfill your part of the contract so that then I can, in turn, bless you, okay? Think of it as I, will, I can make you rich, if you will, all right? Not that God is going to make us rich. Um, but that's what he's doing in the new covenant. But the sermon isn't about the new covenant, but it touches on it, okay? So again, the covenants are various phases of, of this redemptive scheme. We start from the very first, Adam failed, he couldn't do it, and then each successive covenant is bringing us closer towards our need for redemption, our need for Savior. It's reminding us over and over and over, the contract is getting more complex and we can't fulfill it. Until Christ says, I have come to fulfill it. Because he did not come to abolish the law. He came to what? Fulfill the law. So that's what we're seeing here. Okay? Now, this single way of salvation, again, it's progressively revealed. We can see that in Romans chapter 4. You can write that down. Galatians chapter 3. Okay? Paul, again, is going to be reminding us of this progressive nature of salvation. Uh, Not that salvation, but redemptive history. So, Therefore, (laughs) now we can go into the text. Um, 
all of that, again, was meant to bring us to this point. Paul is summarizing everything, and now we can get into properly this text. So we have this constant comparison between Adam and Jesus. If we're looking in verses 12 and 14 here, 12 through 14, this constant comparison, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and over and over and over, and he's talking about sin, and he's, he's, he's driving home this point. What is sin? Well, sin is different from death. Because death came into the world because of or through sin. We talked about that. It's sin that enables death to, to, to death. I don't, is that a, can you do that? Um, I did it. It enables sin to, or death to do what it does. So sin itself is something a little bit different than what we think of as behavior. But this sin came through one man, which is Adam, all right? Now, we have this constant reminder of this all through Scripture, is our inability to do good, our inability to do right, our inability to fulfill this covenant obligation that we have to God. We cannot do it, or if we could do it, it's not for very long. And we think about our federal father, Adam, And we think, well, he did it for a little while, but not for long. He couldn't. He wanted to be like God. And that's ultimately part of the reason why he and Eve sinned. Okay? Now, death coming as a result of sin. Death is not a power unto itself. Death, um, I don't want to be cartoonish and, you know, explain how Grim Reaper and all of that. Um, Death itself is not its own power. Death is a result of sin, okay? Death is not on equal level with God because then God wouldn't be God. God would be a lowercase g, God, and death would be capital D, death, okay? So death comes as a result of, now, death spreads to all men via the curse, and again, this likely has some kind of biological you know, implication here. Um, but what we do know is that regardless of one's personal morality, sin is going to be the result. It's an opportunity. We will take the opportunity every chance that we get. And if we take a course and do something good, it's because it benefits us. We do not do good just for goodness sake, okay? Without the power of the Holy Spirit. And we'll get there. So we see again in Romans 3.23, Paul is saying, all have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God. All are in Adam, is what he's reminding us here in this text. So scripture also points out here, if you move move down, that the particular type of sin that Adam undertook is is sinful, but also other types of sin. So, you know, the, the sin itself wasn't the eating of the fruit, He had sinned before that. He had failed to have dominion over creation. He had failed to protect his wife. He had failed to acknowledge God as ultimate king. And so he'd sinned long before he put his teeth into that fruit. But that that sealed it. Okay? And again, this all happened in rapid succession. And we also noticed, too, I was talking about this with with my class a week or so ago, um, you know, it wasn't like Eve had run off and was, you know, alone and, you know, and was fooled. Um, 
it says that she gave the fruit to Adam who was with her. So again, he failed there. He was there all along. They wanted to be like God, which is a big problem for them. All behaviors that transgress God's holiness, that's a big word there, transgress. All behaviors that seek to disacknowledge the holiness of God and that seek to put us into a state of um, self-righteousness, a self-identified holiness, a holiness apart from that we have from God is sinful. And you can sin uh, in good ways, right? Um, we, we, we tell white lies, right? It's, a, it's a, a misnomer or a lie we tell to uh, perhaps preserve the truth. You're like, what? Um, or to keep from having to explain a further evil. Um, there are, we have phrases, you know, choosing lesser of the two evils, um, to which Spurgeon would say, I choose none of the evils. You can just not choose either one. But the point is, there are myriad ways for us to sin, and we will, we're creative and we'll find them all. And this is what this is where Paul is driving here in this text. He said, Adam had a particular sin that he did. And that behavior, that character trait, that, that biology spread. And I don't want to harp too much on the biology part, but I'm meaning it, it transfers through, um, uh, through progency. We are, we are not just privy to that, but we, we like it, right? We will, we will always go after sin the first opportunity we get Back to death, though. So death comes in, in really myriad ways. Uh, we've talked before. It can come through aging. It can come through accident. It can come through malice. It can come through a lot of ways, but death always does come. And we think this is a normal part of life, <clears throat> and I guess it has become normal, but it's not natural. We were not created to be that way. We were created with immortal cells. Researchers can see this. They can see that human cells appear as if they should be immortal. I don't know the mechanisms here. I'm not a scientist. But we can read about this. And they, they can look at human cells and, and see that they appear to be designed that they could go on and on and on and on and on, just forever. And so they don't understand why they die. I mean, sure, we can have reasons and causes, sickness and all of that, but they don't understand on a cellular level how cells could die of old age. It doesn't make sense. Well, there's a reason for that. And we don't have to look too deeply and you know, use that as some kind of great apologetic. But the point is, death is not natural. That's where I'm going at here, and this is where Paul is bringing us. Something that is a bit difficult for us um, is talking about death. Because it's so final. Sometimes, I think most of the time, you know, sometimes, uh, I think sometimes death could be a blessing. Um, and it certainly is for the believer. And I think the hardest part is you think, well, you know, what happens after? And, and, and we're very concerned about, you know, how we will cope and deal. And, and that's normal. But for the believer, they're in glory. 
And so it is a blessing for them. But what we see in death is death does not just come eventually. Sometimes death comes very quick. And very soon in life. And we see this in the death of young ones. Death comes even to them. So how can they die if they have not yet had the opportunity to sin? Well, this is what Paul is saying, is death comes as a result of sin, and that sin comes from Adam. Death itself is the sign of the curse, and it touches all of humanity, potentially. And I know this is hard, and I know for some it hurts. But what Scripture is pointing out to us is that we have to understand the unnaturalness of sin and the burden from Adam that we inherit. It is not easy, and it is not at all lovely and kind. And, and I think very quickly back to what Jesus says in Matthew is, you know, my burden is light, my yoke is light. He doesn't say we're exempt from things, but this heaviness that we have from Adam, right? He's saying, you are no longer in me under this covenant of works. You can be under my covenant, this new covenant of grace. That's the lightness of it. That's, that's the ease of it, okay? So even though we haven't had a chance at any given point to outwardly sin, we are still culpable of this sin. We are culpable with Adam, meaning we share his guilt regardless of if we were there or not. We inherit it. We get it from him. Paul is teaching us here that just as death itself is a sign of the curse, he'll go on in Ephesians to tell us that the Holy Spirit seals believers in their salvation. You will still die. We are still subject to the curse of death. Some, uh, if, if, uh, if Jesus returns today, we will not taste death as every human has. Uh, I think there's, they estimate that there's been something like 108 billion people that have ever lived on the earth. I don't know how they do that. Um, but that's a, that's, a pretty, that's a pretty widely accepted estimate of population of the earth for all time is 108 billion people. We are not different in this generation because we have eye devices and technology and pills that can prolong our life. We will still taste death. We are still subject to the curse. It still is awful. And if Paul were to end it right here, it would just be miserable. But he says, wait. All of that, yes. But then he starts in verse 15. The free gift is not like the trespass. So, what do we do then? We move away from the sin of the one man, Adam, and to the redemption that comes from another man, Jesus Christ. We get, to, we get to observe Adam sinning and saying, yes, that's us. We are condemned. We are separated from God. Our souls have become corrupt, and we are subject to sin and therefore the curse of death. But wait, 
Jesus. What does that mean? Well, Adam's sin condemns everybody, and the sacrificial system that we see in the Old Testament is meant to, um, of course, it is portending, it is foreshadowing, right, to Jesus and the sacrifice that he made, and of course, we have the lamb and the Passover and all that, all that comes into play, and all of that is covenant language, by the way, but what we're seeing here through the sacrificial system and subsequent Subsequent covenants is that the utter necessity of holiness is there from God and we cannot achieve it ourselves. We are utterly hateful of godliness. Yes, you are. The only good in you comes from the Spirit. It comes from God. You cannot choose goodness on your own. Be mad at me for that, but it's biblical. The goodness we have in us as believers comes from God. And the goodness we see in the world as unbelievers comes from God. It's that common grace. The reason we have things like, like art and science, the reason we can have uh, love, that particular emotion, the reason you know, the, there's not a constant stream of natural disasters, one after the other. The reason why it's not a desert out there, that there's food to eat, that there is pretty things to look at, that's all common grace. So the only goodness we're able to observe in the world and the only goodness we're able to actually achieve in and of ourselves comes from God. And woe to us, if we claim it for ourselves. That is not our glory to claim. Note in verse 16 that the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin. So we've spent a lot of time talking about how one man's sin, Adam's sin, transferred to all of humanity after him. But this free gift is not a universal application. So one man, Jesus, his works, where he succeeded, where Adam failed in works righteousness, the free gift that comes from him, this grace, is not a universal application. You are not born into regenerative salvation. There, there, there is a church that teaches this, but it is not biblical. You cannot be born a believer. You were born an insurrectionist. You were born rebelling against God. It is your desire, it is your want, it's how we operate. But through Christ, we can worship, we can love, we can be changed. We don't change, we are changed through Scripture and the renewing of our minds and the renewing of our heart. That's where Paul's going here. So this free gift, it is not a universal, a universal transmission, but the grace and redemption that are applied to both the elect forward and backward in time. We saw this in the, in the Abrahamic covenant and the successive covenants. Remember, I told you we would come back to this. It is credited to them as righteousness. So you're like, well, what, what about you know, the believers in the Old Testament before Christ came and before he lived a righteous life and before he died? under the wrath of God, and then rose and ascended. What about all the believers, all of the God-fearers, all of the covenant keepers up to that point? What about them? 
Well, we have it. In Romans chapter 4, Galatians chapter 3, even James chapter 2, it was credited to them as righteousness. Their faith is what mattered, not what they were able to do. So you might find yourself thinking, like Paul, I'm doing the things I don't want to do, and the things I do want to do, I can't do, and I'm, I, I, keep, I keep finding myself in the same sinful pattern, and, I'm, and I think I cannot be saved. And the reason you're thinking that is because it's drawing you away from communion with God. Not that that's fully ever possible. God says, you cannot take out of my hand but even still, you feel far from God. And that's where Jesus steps in and says, just like you know, with, this, with this new covenant, I will help you keep the contract. The Holy Spirit comes and helps us do good works. That being worshiping and, and seeking after Christ. Now, chapter 9 of Romans uh, It'd be a while before we get there, but it's going to deal specifically with the elect, but he's hinting at it now. And again, remember Paul, he's, he's a systematician. He's building and building and building and building. And chapter 9 is going to be another one of these turning points where we're going to start to summarize again. Now, as we, as we move to this last section here, verses 18 through 21, we have another therefore, I promise we're good. This therefore only has to deal with up to verse 12. Um, Paul is reminding us again that the law increases the trespasses we commit. Now, how can a law make you more of a lawbreaker? You can think about that for a second. Well, we do know, um, for example, there are some laws, uh, even written in the past, that were written such as that they should be broken because they were going after certain people. Um, as an example, um, we have, you know, the, in, the, in the 80s, they came up with the RICO laws, which was meant to go after organized crime, drug dealers. Um, those laws were written so that when they were broken specifically, they could then be persecuted, okay, prosecuted rather. Um, they wrote those laws knowing they would be broken. Just an example. Examples always fail, but go with me here. The law was written to further identify our wretchedness, right? Not just to God who knew it, but so that we would see it in ourselves and in others. We would be able to observe the sin that was being transmitted all the way from Adam into us. That's where the law and even the progressive covenants serve to do. But each covenant saying, okay, now you're here, pointing towards Christ. And now you're here and we're pointing towards Christ. All of these covenants are progressively working towards Christ until you have this new covenant in him. You have the ability, the, the capability of redemption from your sin that is innate in you. The saving grace that we receive from the completed work of Christ applies to all of our lives perfectly. And I use that word intentionally here um, because in Greek, there's, there's various tenses in Greek. But one is called the perfect tense. And there's a perfect past and a perfect future, but there's a perfect tense. And the perfect tense means that something is completed, but that it has ongoing results. 
Think about that. The redemption that Christ achieved for us on the cross is perfect. It is completed, and it has ongoing results. And so we see that in our lives. Are we perfectly free from sin? Paul says, no, there's the, there's the old man, there's the old ways, and you're constantly fighting you know, against, and, you're, and that's, that's really the, the life of the believer is you're constantly struggling and battling against sin. Amen. But what we're seeing here is these ongoing results. Your justification happens once. That's the completed action. And then you have this further growing in godliness all throughout your life. And, and, and it looks like one of those, you know, business, uh, you, you, you know, you see it. It's like, you know, everybody thinks the path to success goes up, 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 up. But it's really like, you know, this. That's how a lot of our lives are when we're, when we're growing and walking in holiness. There's ups and there's downs. And I would constantly defer you back to the prophets who had literally direct communication with God and all of them, all of them still doubted because it's still hard. So one man, Adam, sinned for all people and one man, Christ, the last Adam, as Tom Guthrie would want me to articulate. Uh, my tendency is to say the second Adam, but I, I know Tom wants me to say the last Adam. He did, Jesus did what Adam could not. He fulfilled the works covenant. Everything he did was holy and righteous. So over and over and over again in this text, we're reminded that the only thing we can do in our natural state is sin, and humans are incapable of choosing righteousness due to sin. And because of the death that we inherit from him, we are scared of everything. Death looms over us. Even as believers, we're scared to die. So I, I, I wouldn't have lived my life, or what, what about my family? We have life insurance. I joke that my life is worth more, like I'm, I'm worth more as a corpse than I am walking around. We take precautions because death scares us out of living. But Jesus is saying, you do not have to fear death anymore. Yes, it will come, but you know what comes after. You know that I have sealed you against this spiritual death. That type of death will come to those who reject the gospel. That soul of the believer that is eternal and will live with God forever the soul of the one who rejects the gospel will also live forever with flesh. And scripture says that it's, a, it's an eternal torment. And that comes from Adam. Through Christ we're made co-heirs. Again, there's a legal term here. We are able to inherit along with this man who is not our blood all of the riches that his father has preserved for him as an inheritance. And part of that is eternal life. Jesus is the firstborn among the dead. 
we will now gain that from him. And it's not ours. We have no claim on it. But he says, I'm sending the Holy Spirit to you to seal you, which now gives you claim. It's your ticket. And I want to give it to you. It might seem impossible as we walk out of here today to think that there's one man that did something thousands and thousands of years ago and that we would be held in contempt for his sin. But let me, hear, let me, let me say this. If you cannot believe that because of one man you are condemned, then you're going to have a heck of a time believing that because of one man you're redeemed. It's funny how Scripture does that. Scripture is recursive. It's always going to loop back to itself. And so we see this from the very beginning. One man, one man, one man, one man. And then Paul says, yes, there is one man by which we are saved. We often, we often preach and we say, um, as a result of uh, the Reformation, that, that great slogan, sola fida, by faith alone. And what that means is we are saved by faith and not works, and that's true, but the fact is we are saved by works. But it's not yours, and it's not mine, and it's not anybody else's. We're saved by the works of Christ. That's the whole point. Paul is going out of his way in this very lengthy section to say because of one man you're condemned because of one man's works you have been condemned but be also because of one man you now have redemption adam failed christ succeeded there are a lot of things that that we don't understand <clears throat> about the will of god how and why he does things, and we seek to understand the mind of God. But, but here's the truth. They're really not meant to be understood, necessarily. What we are meant to do is look at them, and it should drive us to worship, to reverence, to awe of him. He's God, and it's his prerogative to do how he does, but he does so for our best interest, but most of all for his glory. That's the new covenant. We have the opportunity now to glorify him in the way that he would be glorified. That should be our worship, and that should be how we understand this particular passage of Scripture. This is the gospel. This is what Paul is saying. This is, this is where Martin Luther calls Romans the most pure gospel. That we are irrevocably dead in our trespasses. We need a redeemer. Christ redeemed sinners with his work on the cross. If we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. So it's a really simple equation. Turn away from your sinful righteousness, your, your works righteousness, and turn to Christ to be your righteousness. 